Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Derek Woodski. In today's episode, we talk to former Navy SEAL and strength and conditioning specialist, Jeff Nichols. We take on the hard-hitting topics of opioids and cannabis, as well as talking in-depth about the difference between information and knowledge, and how in an information era, it is still knowledge that reigns supreme. All right, welcome to the show, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you. <laughs> it's, it's good to be here, Derek. All right, so today we're going to talk a, a lot about strength and conditioning, but it's my goal today to sort of take us down a road that's going to be a little bit different than what people are probably anticipating. And we're going to talk about how you got into the strength and conditioning world very briefly, and a little bit about how you transitioned from your military career into basically high performance coaching at the highest level. So if we want to go back in time a little bit, just give us a little introduction to who you are for those that are listening and sort of the path you took from collegiate athletics into the Navy, then back out again. Yeah, super simple. And it, it's not this, this path is not terribly unlike so many of us that became strength coaches, grew up, you know, grew up in a small town, became an athlete, played baseball in college at Troy university in Alabama. Uh, it, it, it was all good, but it just, you know, in that, when those playing days end, you tend to find yourself kind of missing the team atmosphere. I found myself uh, really over those collegiate and high school years really grew a passion for weight training because I felt like skill being what it is, that was a way to start equaling the playing field a little bit was get bigger, faster, stronger. And playing days ended, became a strength coach at Troy University as, a, as, as an assistant, uh, went to grad school. In the midst of grad school, again, that, that urge to be part of a team seemed to be very prevalent. So it, the, joining the military seemed to, to make the most sense to me, uh, and that's what I did. Uh, spent 11 years doing that uh, as a SEAL. And the irony kind of that's – where, that's where the irony kind of comes in, I guess. It's not happenstantial. I guess everything might have a design, I suppose, but – at the time, at the at the at the later years, at the ten nine ten year mark of, of my time in the military, the federal government began funding a program called the POTIF. It's called the POTIF now, the Preservation of the Force. And point is, is there's a lot of hiring of strength coaches, dietitians, uh, athletic trainers, you name it. All that whole sports science team, they were being hired by all the special forces teams worldwide by the U.S. Right. and by me having a background in strength conditioning and being at the command I was at, I was at the forefront of some of the decision-making as, as far as I had some really good mentors and senior leaders to go, hey, you've had some experience in this. Can you help give us some guidance? And, and I, found, I found out that like what real resources are. You know, We think about – like I've, I've been around some of the high-performance teams in the United States and worldwide and like they've got some resources. Right, right. But when you're dealing with the resources of the place I was at – Right, like it's 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 silly when the when the United States is your bank bank yes. checkbook. Like right? we were talking nine hundred and ninety eight million dollar program. That was the that was the budget that was set for the military for the, for this program. And this is and, human performance as a whole, correct? 
Yeah, it was originally called the Humans Performance Initiative, and it later became the POTIF because it had gotten so much interest. You know, it spilled over into the chaplain's worlds and the family advocacy stuff because that pot of money was so robust. Right. It still exists today and has done such great things for our special forces and for our military as a whole now because the, the Army and Marine Corps are now taking on that pilot soda program that was developed years ago and beginning to spread it throughout the throughout the branch of service. So fast forwarding a little bit, you know, I get, I get out of the military and I just I love sport all equally regardless of the sport typically. So for me it's a beautiful place to be in because I don't I'm not biased towards sport. I'm just biased towards performance and all sport can utilize good performance. Right. And then having the background on the performance side with the military, it just made me it really pulled that veil off of the inadequacies, not of the people in our military, law enforcement and fire, of, but the inadequacies of what's being provided to them in terms of information, education, and real sports performance that I had experienced in the collegiate pro and then on the military side. So without interrupting you too quickly, that sort of brings up an interesting point of something I've had a conversation with uh other military personnel in the past, and I was going to get your opinion on this, might be a good time. What they were speaking about was the fact that they found where a lot of programs or a lot of different teams would get into situations where they were doing a lot of their own uh, programming based on you know, one person's opinion, a lot like collegiate strength and conditioning, and people become extremely tied to whatever that belief was because there's such an emotional attachment to it because in your guys's world winning is living winning isn't just the super bowl yesterday it's literally coming home to see your families etc did you ever see a situation especially with military high performance or tactical conditioning where maybe some of the best systems weren't being used but because there was such a strong emotional attachment to it due to the fact that it allowed you to survive or you felt that it did that maybe some of the best practices weren't always being used because of that yeah i would i would venture to say that it's almost a pandemic okay and that's because and here's why but it makes sense and i can give you in my opinion why i think it it's almost this sort of like we say pandemic and we go, well, that's terrible. It kind of is, but you'll see here in a minute what I mean. Okay. So the, the spe- especially in the special forces population where the, the genesis of this came from was you got to understand that entire population was based on attrition, right? right. The, 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 the selection and assessment of all special forces individuals originated on attrition. Based on that attrition, then a certain training lifestyle is developed, invoked, and at the end of that completion, it's like I successfully endured this, and a pillar of my success in enduring this was this physical component that was pushed put upon me. Got so it. we associate success with that sort of, you know, burning the candle at both ends as far as training. But again, this is and this is this is no knock on anyone, but it's just. When you have that very serious, strong mindset of people are willing to endure, and they do, and they get to the end, they go, oh, yeah, man, this is all I have to do. I just have to just crush myself every single day to – and that's my measure for, for my state of readiness. Right. And right. that's why. Because they're so good at it. Because we look at it and go, well, you know, oh, this is what it takes. And we go, no, no, no. You understand is you're able to do this because of the beauty of human resiliency of the human body, not because necessarily it's the right thing to do. 
And what you end up doing is you look at an older athlete in the, you know, in the sport, in the pro world, they kind of all started out like that too. And then it becomes very much. Yeah. Very, but the crocodile theory, right? Which one survived yep. evolution? Those exactly. will probably be your best athletes or your most uh, successful in a lot of situations. Right. You know, there's just so many examples. There, there are examples that, that are contrary to that, of course, but that again, that's a testament to the human body. Right. And the human right. physiology and the willingness to blah, blah, blah. Right. So all, all those sort of examples. So that's the thing is it, it's not just, you know, what I'm doing now. It's not just trying to write the ship because I, I because I know it's right. Writing the ship is, is has to be based on education right. and information and sharing of information from a standpoint of, well, as strength coaches, we're all guilty of having a big ego. And then for me, there's no exception to that. I'm no exception to that because of my huge ego is, you know, from being a strength coach plus adding the time being a seal. And now I'm just trying to go, you know what? I I'm just, I'm done. I'm done being so egotistical and these sort of things. And, and I just really, really matters to me most that the information I'm delivering is helping people first based off of their needs, right. not of me going, well, this is the way I would do it. I'm going to put my thumb on you and make you do it, and you're my athlete. And I thought right. that was one thing. It's like Bo Sandoval, who's the performance director of the UFC, said something a couple weeks ago that really impacted me. And he's like, you know what? I just I really refuse to just refer to people as my athletes. He's like, I'm the vessel for their education. They're not mine. And I thought that that was really thought-provoking for me, and I appreciated that sort of level of humility at a guy who's been, you know, been through mi- head strength coach at Michigan. He's it's been, been around a long time, you know. And 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 I just I, I appreciate the world a little bit differently than I used to. It's interesting that you say that because it, it brings up a valid point. When I look back over my athletic career, and it started, you know, collegiately uh, more than twenty years ago. Much like yourself, you'll you remember a lot of that type of jargon that was used by coaches in our generation. And it was very much an ownership thing. They saw you as almost like tools to their own success, even at a detriment, you know, uh, the things that injury wise, programming wise. And, and I understand some of that over the years was necessary. I've talked about this a little bit, regardless of my injuries, I understand that you got a four-year window to maximize an athlete for the success of an institution. So I get that. I get that they have to be successful, you know, in 48 months or you'll lose the opportunity. But what I often see is that same mentality doesn't put enough onus on the actual performance coaches. They have a tendency to be like, I wrote this master plan. I have this brilliant understanding of strength and conditioning because my ego tells me this but in the end they don't really have a true application of sports performance because all they're doing is sort of cranking out the lever of a factory and just crushing license plates until the 48 months is up and if if you're successful great if you weren't you're forgotten. No one gives a yep. shit. You know, yeah. your name will never go up on the wall unless you are the 1% that made them look like a superstar. You know? Yeah, one of the things, one of the impressions I've had with being able to meet Judd Logan and, and hear stories about Judd, Judd, Judd's a perfect example now because you're so familiar with him right. mo- yep. better than most, is this, is that when people tell stories about Judd Logan, 
for example, and others, other, uh, other, you know, like Tony Dungy and other play, other people, even Bill Belichick. It's right. He's you, one the story. Yep. The story you hear about them is this person led me to that place. Like they, they set the example. They didn't like, cause I remember you telling a story about Judd saying, you know, we were squatting and we get in the rack and he's just like, Hey, this is what we're doing. And you're like, well, can I do this? He's like, well, I wouldn't have you do it if you can't do it. Right. Like, Oh shoot. Like, Oh, so you do it. And you're like, and you look at him and you're like, no, we're just getting started, man. Get in there and get some more. And you're like, you're sure. Like, dude, I'm not going to put you in this. It's like a father figure. I'm not going to put you in that position. I'm I'm going to put you in a difficult position because I know you can handle it. Not because I need to make my mark. And that's the big difference with coaching now, but I'm trying to find people like that. You, You hit the nail right on the head. And it's funny that you use those two examples. Like when I think back to Judd, for example, Judd made a funny comment, and he used to make it at at pretty much the start of every season, especially if we had a lot of freshmen. And he said, listen, don't come in here and put a bunch of weight on the bar and fail and look like shit. He goes, if it's happened in the weight room, I've either seen it or I've done it. There is nothing that you're going to do to impress me today that I haven't already experienced. And and there's something to that mentality that's very relieving as an athlete because you know that if you just follow the plan and you stick to the system that you'll be successful. And it was funny, when I had my short stint with the Cleveland Browns, we had a lot of carryover guys at the end of their career from the Patriots. You know, So we had like Willie McGinnis, we had Ted Washington, uh, Ethan Kelly. And, you know, so I'd always pick their brain and they used to talk about Belichick. And, you know, last night with the Super Bowl, you know, I would say that I'm much more of a Patriots fan than a lot of other teams in the NFL. And people are like, well, why do you like the Patriots? Because everyone hates them, it seems. It's the process. It's the process. You can appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like for me, I used to listen to the stories that the Patriot, former Patriot players would tell me in the morning in the weight room about Tom Brady. They would talk about. Junior Seau, before he passed, they would talk about Belichick. And back in 07, listening to the stories a decade ago of how these guys pursued the NFL lifestyle is the reason that I'm a Patriots fan. And also because you've worked in the NFL yeah. and you saw the contrast. Oh, the contrast right? is horrendous. So, and I've worked not at this scope. I, I've been, I say worked. I have been invited <laughs> with financial gain to about nine different NFL teams for right. a very short stint. Yep. So I don't work for them, but I've seen enough behind the curtain to go, Oh, and Patriots is one of those teams that I've, um, not by pay, but while I was, while I was in the Navy working through the program that I previously mentioned and like developing, like developing a infrastructure, it, so Matt Patricia, mm-hmm. who is now leaving, whatever he had, a, he had a cousin at the command. So we had this weird sort of like intro, of like, "Hey, could we kind of see behind the curtains of how you guys are selecting and assessing?" And they were equally like, "Huh, wonder how." You... So there was this very cool sort of interaction, right. Right. and so I really was able to see the Patriots on this really unique sort of like no stress environment. Where I mean, it, it, that's what it looked like, but it, they were in the middle of the season. Right. And it was strange. It was really strange because I've seen it. Like I said, I've seen a number of teams and in the same with the Golden State Warriors that was able to was fortunate enough to get that invite, spend a couple of days with them uh, the, uh, three years ago yep. before their first title. And I was like, shit, man, if I threw some some football pads on these guys in the Patriots uniforms, it looked like there was a Patriots in here. 
in terms of the way they carry themselves. Right. Yep. And then the same thing. It's like, I've really been like one of my favorite places to go visit is I'm from Iowa. So the university of Iowa wrestling head coach of Tom and Terry brands, Right. I've gotten to know them over the last couple of years. And Dan Gable goes still, it's just, I go into their, their facilities and spend some time with them. I'm like, huh, this kind of feels like the Patriots and the Golden State Warriors, you know, (laughs) and you just kind of like, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. You start start auditing all these things and go, man, can it, is it really that? It's not that it's simple, but you know what I mean. But success and successful mentalities are replicable, right? Like it's there. There's people as patients, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it, and that was the way they described it. It was um, here's like an interesting thing that I thought, and I don't know if it's like this still because I'm using a ten a ten year old reference, but Willie McGinnis told me that. Tom Brady and Junior Seau and a couple other guys were always 100% the 6 a.m. lifting group. They lifted at the 6 a.m. group every day, not because they wanted to, not because they thought it was the optimal time to train, but they set the standard for in which the entire team now had to follow. Yep. And there's something to be said about that. And you know what was interesting is Willie had some back issues when he got to Cleveland. It was sort of the end of his of his tenure. And so he had he had slightly different training protocol. He didn't train with the group. He had to do his own training. He trained extremely hard, but he had to had to have some special guidance. He still trained every morning before the first group by himself. Yeah. Because he believed it established standard of belief within the system. And the other thing that was really interesting about Willie McGinnis is he didn't drive a flashy car. He drove a Chevy pickup truck, which he referred to as his work truck. And that's what he would drive <laughs> nice. to work every that's single awesome, day. That's awesome, man. Right? Because it's like mental- it's mentality, right? Get you got to get your mind where you got to get it. Yep, you have to. And it becomes a belief system and a fundamental that starts to win. And so we had guys like that that sort of really only had one year left. And to me, when I look back, it's no surprise that 07 was the year that Cleveland actually almost made a playoff. Yeah. And then when those guys left, everything left with them. You know, the coaches left, the players left. Yep, it's the process. Yeah, and that's where – so ironically, I guess my summary for this little bit is that when I was asked two years ago – and I guess it was two years ago this year – November where I did my TEDx talk. That's right. It was like, it was this perfect storm of like, what am I going to talk about? And, and it's interesting the base of the same conversation we're having. I had just recently left working with an NFL team and I had just recently left working with the university of wrestling team and a couple others. And I started thinking, I, I just started asking, I remember I asked Tom brands and I said, well, you know, because he's arguably one of the best wrestlers ever, right. other than Dan Gable, Kale Sanderson, now Snyder, Corey Snyder at Ohio State, just amazing athletes. And Tom was just like, Terry were both are just like, because they were afraid, like truly, truly afraid of how they would handle a loss. Like they were afraid of losing, like truly. Right. And it's funny because despite what you may think of the man, I've never met him, but I do have a certain impression of a guy like Ray Lewis. Right, that right. You know, it's funny because I'm I'm a, I'm a big believer in saying passion doesn't make up for intent. Passion and motivation won't make up for knowledge. But when you have a guy like like that's that skilled, mm-hmm. that's that knowledgeable about football and that passionate, like Ray Lewis is, it's a dangerous combo. 
it's it's just beautiful to watch somebody do that with something that we consider as a game. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And it's like, and I would agree a hundred percent. There's there's a lot of people. You know, you read these bullshit T-shirt slogans that. You know, and my favorite was the old one for football, 98% intensity, 2% skill. You know, like, yeah. they used to sell that bullshit. And, <laughs> and people buy it. Still are. Still sure. are, right? They're fucking, they probably, we just probably made a reemergence of that garbage. So <laughs> it's, uh, but it's true. So there's a lot of belief that that is it. It's like, give me 98% and we'll take care of the rest. How big of a fucking ego does a coach have if he believes that all you have to do is show up with intensity and they'll take care of the rest? Yeah. Right? Like, it has to come back to the athlete. And it has to come back to the person in the, in the tactical world that's putting in the time that you have to, as you say, become a student of your endeavor. Yeah. So if it is... I mean, is, that's what real mentorship is, right? Absolutely. I mean, because... Whoever replaces Tom Brady or even like in the world that I can understand, the person that, quote, like I guess if in a way replaced me in the community. Right. And that's what it's all about. It's what the All Blacks say. You know, the All Blacks carry around the journal for the jersey. And when they hand the jersey in, they hand the journal into the next player and say, your job is to leave this jersey and this journal better than I gave it to you. Right. And that's that's the difference is like when when it, and there's a difference between training somebody up to to get along to the system to get into the system. There's a difference between that and true assimilation. Right. The, the Patriots assimilate. The Yankees assimilate. The Red Sox began to assimilate. Like go down the line like the the the, the all blacks are the most beautiful piece of of sporting assimilation that we've ever seen the actual enculturation of activity and life yes right yes in every aspect but it's not like it's it, it's not it's the other extreme of the businessman this is the example i would use the business the very quote unquote financially successful businessman that has nothing else but his 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 work life right because that's not really what I would me personally consider culture. Because if no, you, you have you read the book Legacy, but with the All Blacks, I have not actually. You need, it's a super short read, yep. but oh man, you'll see what I mean. It's Legacy, it's really worth your time. But I think you hit right on the head because we're on the same thought process. So as you were describing that, you were using the word like I was thinking culture and corporation. Then you say corporation, and and that's exactly it. A lot of people will take people and train them up to fit the corporation of their model, right? So that they can be another cog in a giant machine. Whereas the culture is what really manifests long-term championship success. So as a... Because it allows for diversity. It allows for diversity. like, And that's what people have to understand. Like, you know, when you take a team like the Patriots, and yeah, they lost last night, but overall they're still... They'll be, in the, they'll be in there next year. They'll be there next year, right? And, <laughs> and what people have to understand is getting to the Super Bowl is is darn near impossible. But getting to the Super Bowl, having been to the Super Bowl, is – okay, so people don't understand this. The NFL is so hard on the body, and it's such a demanding game because of the amount of injury and wear and tear and time constraint – that it's almost 
impossible to repeat Super Bowls because when you make it to the Super Bowl, by default, your season is a month longer than everybody else. Yep. Oh, yeah. And, and that's crucial on the backside. <laughs> it's crucial on the backside. And what a lot of people forget is teams that are able to repeat and repeat and repeat to the playoffs and the Super Bowl, they're not recovering like the worst team in the league. The worst yep. team in the league has been sitting on a beach literally for three weeks. Yeah. So you already started saying it, and this is one of the realizations that I came to when I began actually asking all these very six quote unquote successful businessmen and, and, and coaches. Like I asked Steve Kerr the same question. Yep. And what I found out was this is that, and, and this is no, I, I'm very happy for the Eagles. I really am. Just if that's the beautiful point, like I said, I, I don't care about any of the, like truly about any logo. I care about the action that people, you know, seeing them, the Eagles successfully win is, is exciting for me as a, as a coach. But my point is, is that success for me has to fit, has to be, you have to be able to do three things for me to consider something successful. Like, and this is not very judgmental, but it, you'll see what I mean. One is it has to be almost predictable. And I mean, in the sense of like, you know, the Eagles show up, the prediction is that they're going to show up to perform. They're ready. So that's what I mean. It's, it's, pre it's pretty, pretty predictable that they're going to do pretty good. Yep. Number two is, um, it, it has to be reliable, right? I guess it's really almost four things. It's one and two things. It has to be predictable and reliable. Okay. The second one, the next one is, is it has to be repeatable. Yes. One, a one-time thing is just kind of like, not that they weren't successful in that moment, but I look at all of us as coaches, right? Look at all of us as coaches, athletes, and people. We want to do it our entire life or as at least as long as we can, whatever it is we're passionate about or we're, we're professionists. So that's what I mean by it has to be repeatable, which is like that's a perfect example of the Patriots since ever for the last, shoot, man, 15 years. It's To some degree, it's been repeatable, but this is why. And this is how it all has to work, in yep. my opinion. Yep. You have to be able to teach it. Yes. If you can't teach it, that's I mean that's our entire profession, right? Our entire profession is to teach these sort of, sort of repeatable, reliable norms to almost quote unquote almost predict success. Absolutely. And that hits the nail right on top of the head because it's the best athletes, the best coaches, the best mentors, it doesn't matter if it's business or sport, uh regardless of the of the circumstance is the ability to take as you say information and turn it into knowledge it's true transcendence true transcendence and, yeah and we were speaking about this right before we went live and i think it's something that you were really hitting on that i think is essential and it is the difference between living in the so-called information age and what is actually knowledge to the user. And it's something that I want you to expand a little bit on because I think it's essential to understand the difference. There's, um, for example, in the NFL, uh, what people don't realize is say a low-level player gets cut from Jacksonville and say the Steelers have to play Jacksonville in two weeks. What they will often do is they'll pick up that player off a waiver give him a few grand or maybe quite a few grand and basically have him transcribe the playbook for Jacksonville's yep. offense and defense or whatever position he was on. And then the Steelers will cut him after the game and that guy will probably get picked up again by another team that needs that win and that information. 
that is information for sure. Yes. It's, it's fantastic yes. information. The player, if he had true knowledge of what he was doing, probably wouldn't, you know, granted, he's not, doesn't suck as an athlete, but granted, probably wouldn't have gotten cut in the first place. Right. Right. So it's, yeah, it's exactly. So then again, the, if we can just, it, the irony of these conversations are, are, are perfect because the football, because Matt Patricia, right, is leaving. Right. That's, he's not just taking information with him. No, he's, he's not. taking really infrastructure and cultural knowledge. So that's, you know, you know, name drop because it's worth, worth the name drop in this population that are going to listen to your podcast for sure. Cause, which yep. is why you and I have gotten along so well is that, you know, Dr. John Sullivan was a sports psychologist for the Patriots for the last 16 and a half years. Right. Right. So, okay. So that's different. There's, there's, and he and I, he, he's, he's one of the persons I literally contribute saving, literally saving my life. Right. Uh, when I was in a pretty low spot. But my point is he, he, he had a good conversation with him the other day and that's what he's, you know, he gets frustrated just like I do and, and, and a professional outright should have, you know, it's people spilling a ton of information and, and, and writing it off, off as knowledge. And when you have a real professional, like where, you know, there's this being been this big molding of the last 18 months of sports psychology and coaching. Okay. And, and you may know who people I'm talking about. It's nothing negative necessarily, but I, I always get all fired up when people, you know, step in my, step in my area with no information just like and my heart really goes out there for dietitians real sports dietitians yes when you have just so many nutrition gurus i'm just like no 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 no. like let's really let's let's give credit where not credit's not the right word but let's seek knowledge where we know knowledge exists right right just information saturation so that's where i'm such a big seeker of truth now and i always have been but I, I'm not sure why necessarily I'm more patient with it. Mm-hmm. And I think what ends up happening is, well, just like the other day, I just texted you. I was like, Hey man, like what's like, I, if I have an opinion on something, if I need to formulate an opinion on something that I have no knowledge of quote unquote knowledge of, right. I'm going to go where I know knowledge exists. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask Derek Wood or I'm going to ask John Sullivan. I'm going to ask Cal Dietz. I'm going to ask, you know, if I have a question about being a middle linebacker for the NFL, I'm going to ask someone who I was introduced to, Trent Murphy for the Redskins. You know, right, so it's just right. like I don't. Here's the because here's here's my summary, and I'll be quiet for a second. Is that this is this is why I get frustrated, but also why I'm I'm happy is because in the information age that exists, and this is the podcast is a perfect example. We can actually find the knowledge now, whereas before it's like you you couldn't find these sort of, you know, in the the early 80s, if you really wanted to talk about undulating block periodization, (laughs) right, you're not going to be able to reach out to somebody in St. Petersburg who developed it, Russia or wherever, and someone in the United States that's utilizing it. Like you if if you wanted to interact with Judd Logan in 1988, you had to go find him, had to go find him. And and, right. you know, it, it's funny that you say this because Judd will appreciate this when he listens to it, and and you're going to really get a kick out of this. So, regardless of of people's opinion on a lot of different strength coaches, there were certain strength coaches in the industry prior to the internet that were already starting to become, I guess, in for a lack of a better word, famous or sought after 
because they were just a little bit further ahead. They had a little more knowledge and a little more understanding of the information than, say, the majority. And so one of those guys in the early days um, was a guy, as you know, is Charles Poliquin. And so we know Charles now, and I'll be fully honest, we see Charles now as like a slogan slinger and a supplement guy and a guy that sells books on training arms, right? Like that's what he became. Um, And I, in my opinion, having worked for him, he became that because he's also a businessman and realized that he wanted to live in a house, not a trailer the rest of his life. Like that, that's reality. So regardless of, of opinion, you have to always step back and be like, oh yeah, you got to make a buck and you got to put food on your table. But when you look at Judd and one of the reasons that makes Judd an exceptional coach and goes back to sort of solidify what we're talking about is the seeker of knowledge and the understander of information. He did two things that I think are really interesting. One, when he was competing at the Olympics, uh, in 84, and then in particular in 92, uh, obviously 88, um, Actually, you know what? 88 probably would have been the big one in Seoul. Yeah, in Seoul, yep. Even though he was there sitting as an athlete competing, he would sit in the training hall and he would watch all of the Soviet hammer throwers train. And so even though he's supposed to be there 100% in the zone and doing all that stuff, he knew that he was still in the building process of his own athleticism. Yeah. And... So he would watch and watch, and all Bondarchuk's guys would come in, and you know, Sedek and Lipvinov and Tam, and he'd watch them and saw them train. And then he did something really interesting. He tells a story to me, and I don't know if he talks about this publicly a lot, but it's not a you know big secret story. He just talks about one night after the Olympics was over, or you know, the hammer throw for those guys. Yeah. Um, he went to Bondarchuk's room, knocked on the door, and Bondarchuk opened the door. And he was just like, I need to talk to you about hammer throw. And he said, Bondarchuk was sitting there, no shirt on, you know, on the edge of his bed. And Judd just frantically took notes, every possible note. What people don't understand is Bondarchuk, as as the Soviet coach, sat down and set up an American, Judd Logan, training program. On the edge of a bed. And people think, holy shit, why would he do that? Because he believed that Judd Logan, if he had have come through the Russian system, would have been the greatest hammer thrower in history. World record holder. Yeah. And and that same mentality that Judd had sitting with Bondarchuk, acquiring knowledge from from an an individual that probably had more in his sport than any man on, on the planet ever has... He then did the same, and this is where you'll think it's really interesting. So pre-internet, Judd Logan heard about this guy named Charles Poliquin, who lived up in Montreal at the time. He wasn't yeah. even the big celebrity that he became to some degree in the fitness world. <clears throat> and he drove. Judd got in his car, sight unseen, based on one or two telephone calls and maybe a letter in the mail, drove all the way up to Montreal. And he remembers meeting Charles on the front step of his house, not knowing what the guy looked like. And Charles sort of looks at him. He's like, in French, what he said was, hey, fucker, get off my steps. 
right? Because <laughs> right? he didn't yeah, know who Judd I, was either, right? Yeah. And so Judd said this, like, French guy makes this comment to him, like, because they're, you know, two strangers at night, probably like fucking 11 o'clock at night, right? So Charles yeah. is sort of like feeling him out. Why is this guy on my front porch? You know, and Judd is like, hey, I'm Judd Logan, blah, blah, blah. And Charles is like, oh, yeah, 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 I remember. Come on in. And I think their first workout was in their basement, right? Nice. And you're like, okay, so that's the way it used to be. And, and that's what people had to do to acquire true knowledge. Yeah. You know, and Judd went on to, you know, in 92 to dominate, uh, came back in 2000 in Australia as the oldest member of the U.S. track and field team. So he's had this incredibly long-spanning career because of it, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it, I, I swear to God, you're in my head, and this is why, for a couple things. Because kind of before we even went down, you began telling that story about Judd. My last recollection of Judd is this, my first. And so I met Judd Logan five years ago, four years ago, yep. with the Sornex crew at Summerstrong. And I remember, you know, the, the speakers at Summerstrong, right, as we all remember. And I, I remember, so, so for many, many of us, like when you speak, I'm there, right? We're, we're supporting each other, all those sort of things. And, and yep. it's interesting because as I'm watching you talk and then I talk the next morning, mm-hmm. Judd was sitting in the same place, and it, he's sitting there listening to you and I, not necessarily out of just general, hey, this is what I'm here for. i got to show my sport. Like, he's actually there. Like, he's listening because yes. he's still learning. And like that's one of those things that when I left Summerstrong, like many of us, we go, wow, like, we're so charged and ready to roll. And, yep. like, that's – that's when I made the decision last year after last summer strong that all I'm going to do for at least a year is just travel. Like, you know, when Matt and I came out to see you and Jen right. and like, I'm just, I've got, I'm going to see Dana and Donovan for spring training. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I'm going the next week. I'm going or two weeks later. I'm going, uh, Joe Connolly got the job at Arizona state. So I'm going to go down there and I'm just like, you know what? Uh, I was supposed to go to Bomberitos this weekend, but, um, it was my son's week at birthday yep. uh, this week. So it's, I'm just like, to to bring it full circle is and again I, you, it's funny because the the uh, the uh, uh, the you know the way that Poliquin is is the person that comes to mind that is exactly that right now that you and I have both gotten to know and the world doesn't realize how great he is 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 Gunnar Peterson yes right it's yes. like oh he's a trainer of the stars whatever but when you see that guy work and his oh my god. That he is the hardest working person that I've ever seen in our field. You know what I mean? Truly, like it's amazing, and he's knowledge, right? So I'm like, the and world it, doesn't know. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And and it's interesting that you say that because it's sort of like that he is almost the example of information versus knowledge. Yes. So like from the outsider's perspective, all they see is this individual who works with the Kardashians, runs a business in California, is a trainer of celebrities. That's information. Congratulations. Yeah. You, get, you got the surface level dust off. Yeah, Instagram. Yeah, got yeah Instagram. Thanks, right? The knowledge. The knowledge is the fact that not only is he probably financially one of the more successful personal trainers in U.S. history, like not just in the recent history, his business is extremely successful, but you're talking about a guy that's been a contributor to muscle and fitness for like 20 years. Yeah. Right, like when yep. I when, oh, I, yeah. when I think back to the editorials 
of the early yes, muscle the kinesiology man. editorials. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep. That was Gunnar Peterson. Yes, it was. Yes. And so people think of him now today as, oh, you know, he's so-and-so because of social media more so than anything. It's like, no. He's just embraced it better than anyone. Exactly. He just was like, okay, so this is the tool that we're using today. All right, I can yeah. do that. Back yep. 20 years ago, the tool I used was a magazine. The tool yeah. I used was this. The tool I used was that. And, and that's the difference between somebody that, in my opinion, will stay on top of the spear instead of, yeah. you know, like I, I talk to Bert Soren about this all the time and, and other people in their industry is it's amazing how short-lived even the most successful people's career are in this industry, like for whatever reason. And, and, and I think as we talk through it, I think it comes back to the fact that they don't actually have culture, right? They don't have the culture of strength and conditioning or the culture of sport performance and they're information based, not knowledge based. So they're just reproducing content, right? Yes. And and we hear that a lot nowadays. Content, content, content. You got to keep pumping it out because you got to keep people coming back. And it's like, oh, that makes that's that makes a lot of sense. So so content is information. Information is the Simpsons. Knowledge, yeah. right? Knowledge yeah. is the Discovery Channel. Yeah. Right? A- yes, and- watching the Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> exactly. Which I hooked on. My son's funny, my son, my 10-year-old son. That's you ask my son who his hero is? Aside from a jet pilot, he's going to say Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm like, that's pretty bold for a 10-year-old. <laughs> that's so a very, that's a very but, bold hero. But it's, it's cool, though, because I – you know, it's, here's, here's the thing that I can put out to – I know you'll feel the same way, but to the listeners is that if, if you look at the people that you seek knowledge from and they're your friends, then you're, then you're on track. Yes. You know what I mean? Because here's the – and this is, this is what I mean by this, too, is that – if you are a true seeker of information and knowledge to help yourself, to help others, to whatever, what you're going to find is someone that you might consider to be completely untouchable, like right. a Judd Logan in terms of having conversation or a Poliquin, right? Or look what, because look what Judd did. He drove his ass up there, yep. right? Um, it's not that we're showing up unannounced to these places, but you understand that people that are truly knowledgeable are the first people that are willing to share their knowledge yes. and that is the if, if somebody and this is this is my litmus test for everybody that i deal with on a in a business side which is what i learned from gunner yep is if you ask these people right if they ask you to come do this or you're you're sharing information ideas and you say oh you've been i see you've been working on this right whatever this is like hypertrophy or what, whatever it is in our world and they go, well, you know, it's a little complex. It can't really, you know, <laughs> if they yeah. can't explain it yeah, or they're unwilling to explain it, explain it, then that's a big sort of, yep, I, I see who you are. Unless, you know, in context of like, especially my place in the, in the military, there's a lot of stuff that went on there that is really on the tip top of forefront of human performance on the planet. Right. But and nobody's doing it right. for various reasons. Now, there are people that are doing aspects of it. But in terms of the entire program to get an athlete, we'll call it a SEAL, an athlete or whatever, yep. it go, you've had all this trauma, you've had all these sort of things, you're already a high performer, you're, you're whatever, but you are just a big mess. Right. Like how to get this person basically resurrected, you know, and then they're, but they're still, even when they're just beat to dog shit like I was, and so many guys are still, or were, 
you can, the human body is so amazing. It can, it can bounce back if, you, if you're patient enough and you have the right knowledge that you're putting into it. So, Yeah, and that's, that's 100% true. And it's funny because you hit on something that's very interesting, and it's, it's the secretive mindset of those that don't want to give away their, their tricks of the trade, as they say, because they're equating everything that comes out of their mouth as a dollar or a dime. And what I find with those people, it is information ridden, knowledge weak. And the reason why they're so protective, so, so protective of the information and want a dollar for every word they say is because they only have a finite number of words that they actually own. Yes. And they can't go into depth and they can't regurgitate statistics over 40 years because they don't have the knowledge birth. And I remember... Uh, a number of years ago, I made some off-the-cuff comment as just being a dickhead probably on social media. And someone's like, hey, man, you should really start selling this stuff. You shouldn't give it away for free. That's what someone said in like an open forum comment. And I was like – and it, it never struck me back then that I should be monetizing my words, right? Like, and right. I, and, and still I don't. I, I, you know, I monetize my coaching but not so much my words. And yep. And what I said to them, I'm like, well, if the day ever comes that what I give away on the internet represents more than 5% of my knowledge birth, then I'll probably start charging for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like a bit of a dickhead thing to reply to what I thought was a dickhead comment. Because it's like, listen, if if a soundbite on Instagram is my depth of knowledge – I'm in deep shit. Oh yeah, you're 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 a mess, and that's but that's what you're again. That's that is that's where that's where knowledge gets lost. It gets yep. lost in the saturation of information, and yes. and that's. But I, I think it's it's probably always been like that, and that's kind of where like we were talking before off cam off camera, I guess off mic is that, yep. you know we we look at, you know if I if I were to pick my biggest frustration with with my profession or just the, the, the collection of the fitness and performance world as seen by social media mm-hmm. or magazine media, if you will, is that we have begun to erode the foundational stuff that's necess- that's a necessity. And, the, and it's because it's unsexy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show well in magazines. I mean, it kind of can, but it doesn't show well in social media. No. The, you know, the, the, the nature of, okay, what really is diaphragmatic breathing? What really is what? Why is back squat, barbell back squatting, so valuable? Why are why is resistance training so valuable? Valuable right. because it's now it's becoming this sort of, you know, there's been a renaissance. There, we're in the middle of it. CrossFit has been a big part of the benefit of it, and all these sort of things. And Absolutely. just the powerlifting community has really gotten better. It is directly result of of social media. Yep. Coaches, we can share information, all these sort of great things. But I still look at it and go, hey, let's not forget of really who this is all for. All this information and our knowledge is for people that don't have it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So we got to make sure we deliver the knowledge. It, it, you have to. It, it, it's almost become like – what you're saying could be summed up in one of those January 1st memes where, yeah. you know, everybody gets pissed off because the gym is about to get really busy for the next 40 days. And 
to me, the people that are getting pissed off are the people that have information. The people yeah. that don't get pissed off are the people that have knowledge. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you just understood that, like, I remember really coming down hard on a group of trainers on a forum because this group of personal trainers in this one gym franchise was mm-hmm. like, oh, things are going to get shitty. It's going to be crowded. My clients are going to this. My clients are going to be that. And it's like, hold on a second. So the very aspect of your career that puts food on your table you are actually negatively attacking it's about to get better for you it's about to get better potentially if you actually took the fact that you, you acquire knowledge you can pull those people in strengthen yourself strengthen your brand increase your revenue as well as improve an entire section of society by introducing them to an actual healthy lifestyle. And it's yep. very soapboxish to say it that way, but that's the reality. We, we work in an industry that is so fragmented right now that we actually have individuals who are complaining about the very source of their existence. Yeah. And, and that yep. is a very and I confusing think that- thing to me. You know, we're, we're all guilty as charged. I've been there too, right? Not as a personal trainer in a sense yep. of one of the large gyms and such, but I, it, this is one of the beautiful things about getting older, I believe mm-hmm. for me in our profession. I really, I really like where my peers like you and, and, and Bert and all like all of us are heading in the right direction. It feels good, you know. And I think that a lot of people. And my point, reason for bringing that up is not just to like talk about how cool I think I am, but it's just <laughs> it's uh you know, for for all of us that you know for all the people that that have that are novice and are are, are debating how they start their training and program because they know they want to do it, they don't know how to do it. There are people out there that are really passionate about it, and that's also, again, the real beauty of not just passion but knowledgeable about it, but the beauty of these podcasts for so many. It's right. it's really – you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, yeah, the podcast has been saturated, but it's not. There's so many. There's, there's 7 billion people, There's right? 7 billion people. It's – I was really apprehensive about getting behind the mic of a podcast because I didn't want people to be burnt out. And then I was like, hold on a second. I listen to like fucking five podcasts a week. Yeah. And what I realized is there is no saturation point for those that are seeking knowledge. Right. There can be saturation for some aspects of a personality like – If you get on there and you listen to somebody that's a a really like a shock jock like Howard Stern was throughout his career, yeah, you may become a little saturated on the personality. But if you can get really good guests and really good people to get on and just talk about a topic, I don't think there is a saturation level. You know? Well, see, that's I, 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 and this is not a, a point of this is not a conversation based off faith or or, or Christianity or nothing. Yep. But again, look, look at the Bible. Right. You, right. you could read. You could read the New Testament, Old Testament, any verse, any given point, and and take different information out of that same paragraph, that same psalm, that same verse, whatever it is. And, and now that's that book isn't. It's not ever growing. Now it's not that our field is ever growing, but 
we are in the best time in our world where we can capture that information and share it. Absolutely. So you could listen. You let's let's say you know to take your take five podcasts. Like take Power Athlete. Take take the Soar next one. Take yours. Take and let's say that you know even me, I could be on all five of those talking specifically about just hypertrophy. Right. And a same, one person could listen to all five of them and take away different information, even though the same topic might be trying to be delivered. Well, I could give a, a perfect clarification for that. So I'm sitting here speaking to you on my podcast with a full memory calendar of your Power Athlete podcast, and I know I'm having a completely different conversation. Right. So right. Yep. when people sit and listen to both, they'll be like, wow, those are two completely different uh, presentations of, of information on strength and conditioning. And, and that's the key, right? Like I heard a funny thing thinking of, of how like language and information and how complex it is. I heard someone actually break down and I, and I think it was Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh man, that dude, I just listened to him last week. And I was like, Whoa, he's, he's My a notebook got full. He's a, he's a mind blower. And yeah, he, he's talking about the correct translation for the phrase, the meek will inherit the earth. The earth. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. And yeah, and, I actually re-listened to that two days ago. Absolutely. And, and for those that haven't heard it, um, what the actual literal transa- translation of the meek will inherit the earth is, those that leave their sword in its sheath and not stand up and fight will inherit the earth. Yeah. And it's because it's Sun, it's Sun Tzu, right? It's Sun All Tzu. over again, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and so that just goes to show the difference between information and knowledge. Man, so folks, I'm telling you right now, listen to him on – again – He's going to start off, and it's going to sound fairly political because that's how he got he Famous, was yeah. he got jolted into this totally. But his process to where he what's the word I'm looking for? His it was a seven year process to write this book, wasn't it? It was a five year. And I he, believe so. He said he re- wrote it and rewrote it ten different times. Man, ten. Oh man. Wrote every sentence out 10 different times and goes, nope, we're going to choose that one. And he did that book. He did it for the book seven times or like silly. Like How big of a mental giant is Jordan Peterson? I – people like him to me substantiate so much about my own sort of beliefs, my own – it all. but it also on a flip side because of where I'm at in my life – I'm ready to take response because the whole again, his entire podcast, his entire existence in terms of social media and YouTube and such, really is. I'll sum it up in this word: these this phrase. Adults need to take personal responsibility for everything they do. Yes, not just that's what it is. It's, I mean, personal responsibility to the point where you are actually making yourself uncomfortable because you've never been that true with yourself. Right, and, and it couldn't be more valuable in our population of strength coaches and and athletes. It's like in relationships, like relationships in in career decisions, in uh, personal morality, um, decisions that you make when you get up in the morning. Like yes. every one of those, and and people can say, well, personality traits determine this, and you got to have freedoms here and freedoms there. I totally get it. It's not about the relinquishing of personal freedom. Right. I 
at all. It's the totally other end. It's the other end. And, And the older I get as well, I'm realizing that true personal freedom, true individual freedom of self is actually somebody that has a steadfast code in which they run or garner their life through so that every day they're like, this is who I am. And when the world sees me, when people meet me, when those that are out there interact with me, there's no more question marks. Yeah. When they see me coming and they see me go, they will have the same experience every time. Yes. And the only, the only thing that will change is the depth of the experience. Yep. But not the experience. Yeah, and I, it's it's what I, one of the takeaways that emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, that I took away from him is that I, I don't even know if I can do a good job explaining this, and it's not going to be long. But I I created out of survival, figuratively and literally, my my job, my former job is in the Navy. Right. Yeah, I had to create a person to 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 be able to handle that lifestyle. You know, right. again, call, we'll call it like a spiritual armor. I don't know what you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it. It's not necessarily just about God, but it's just in general. It's like we create this individual to to handle life, whether it's in sport, it's in business world, it's it is. You know, and I got out after all that all those years of severe conditioning, we'll call it. Yep. It spilled over into my personal life, my family life. And I began not, I'd be taking, I, I took less and less personal responsibility for many, many things that I did because I substantiated it by saying, well, this is how I have to be to be able to handle this lifestyle that I've chosen. Right. Right. And again, I was taking responsibility by saying I chose it, but I wasn't really taking responsibility for me being an asshole. Right. And right. listening to him, you know, because, you know, he has taken or has been, one of the primary topics that he's conversing about or sharing is really about, you know, call it whether call it racism, call it sexism, call it. It's basically that there's those very polarizing topics about right. the gender dynamics it, but, is the big one. Yes, right? exactly. Right. And he understands them because he's a clinical psychologist and such, but he also, which is even more interesting because he is a clinical psychologist taking these, yes. these very, very amazing thought-provoking points of self-responsibility. And and I can tell you because the timing couldn't be better because I really, for the first time in my life, over the last couple months, to my core, have taken responsibility for everything that I've said and done. And it's it hurts, but at the same time, talk about liberating. Right. Because there's something very interesting about the harshness of truth when you finally accept it. So, you know, when you look at, say, you've done someone wrong, you've hurt other people, uh, you've been unfaithful to yourself and unfaithful to another, regardless of circumstance, whatever those things are, you know that as long as the truth is not expressed, even if people might know what really happened, if the truth is never expressed to yourself or to them or to the world around you, you carry it like a weight or a burden, regardless of, of what sort of defense mechanisms you use to protect yourself. And no matter how harsh or how vulnerable or how 
uh, much it stings for that truth to be actually released back into the universe, for lack of a better description, that truth absolutely resets the balance because it it allows people to get back to what I think of as even ground. And so when you get that truth out there and you start living through a much more honest version of yourself, certainly there will be people that maybe weren't always treated well by us or by those that you know are involved, and they may leave your life because of it. But the one thing that you can be sure of is whoever is still around, you're all on an even playing field. Yes. Because when they come into your life or when you go into theirs, they know what they're getting. So people always are like, how can so-and-so, a, a TV celebrity or a CEO or an athlete, the guy seems like such a harsh asshole. Why does everybody love him? Why does everyone love a Belichick that played yeah. for him? People that yeah. don't play for him fucking hate him. The media yeah. goes crazy. Uh, well, from my experience, it's because his truth is always at the tip of his tongue. Yep. So nobody questions who or what or where they're falling into his day-to-day, yep. right? And there's something to be said about that. And I know for you and I, and for those that you know are, are getting used to uh, you know our stories a little bit, a part of that story that they don't understand is through injury, experience in your case, and injury, that you and I both in our you know, I'm 41, you're late 30s, I believe. Yeah, I'll be 40 in August. Um, you'll yeah. be 40 in August. Um, we're what you would think of as pretty straight edge guys, like in terms of we weren't drinkers, we weren't drug users, we weren't those types of characters in the social settings, and we still aren't. But you and I both have found a bit of a, a healing or, or, or health related use of cannabis. And yep. I know that it's something that you've probably never talked about publicly. I know I have talked very little about it, but just sort of give people a little bit of an introduction to as, as why you really started to search out a need to, to, to use cannabis in the first place. Yeah. You know, it, it, it all started really because I was really heavily consuming and addicted to opiates for a number of years and it nearly um this is not a clinical sort of thing i didn't yep. go to the hospital necessarily but it I, I i'm surprised i survived to some degree my addiction was so so bad right and uh i i quit cold turkey <clears throat> years ago just because i got to the point where i just didn't even feel like spending time with my son which was a bad place for me to be in, you know? And so years go by, uh, relationships, I fuck up royally. Yep. And, uh, especially my most recent one, which was a real, a real, real hard time for me. Yep. And it was all my fault. And I, and I, and I say that because it initially, you know, I had every excuse of why it wasn't entirely my fault. Right. So long of the short is that, you know, again, through injuries and a little bit of age, I, I, I will not go back to opiates. They're the fucking devil. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what any doctor says. And this is not based off of like me just like plugging my ears and not listening to what they have to say. Right. I understand far too much about the, the, the world of pharmaceuticals and monetizing opiates and what it really does 
um, and, and alternatives are not being utilized. So for me, with the wear and tear that I have, uh, I can only, you know, <laughs> Tylenol only goes so far with all my back problems. And Absolutely. Same. So same. again, really what it came down to is I didn't have enough people in my true circle of friends that I trusted that were consumers. No, well, I, I had nobody, <laughs> right? Now. At, now, yeah. <clears throat> now, almost every one of my pe- friends that I truly trust People that I've known for a little while and, you know, they're double PhDs, MDs that are consumers as well. And I started asking the question, why? Like, why? Why? Not in the point of judgment of going, how could you? But like, okay, well, I trust you. You're consuming, not in a sense of recreation to forget. And that's what I realized is I thought I was always under the impression that people did drugs to escape. Well, some people do drugs yeah. that just like not have to take responsibility. Right. But I only understood the pharmaceutical mechanism of opiates and what it did to me. It really like we used to call it. I used to call it fuck it all. Yes, because that's what I just didn't give a shit. Like yep. I really didn't manage my emotions. I just didn't give a shit. I just didn't care because of the pills. Yep. Well, the first time I experienced, I, I experienced cannabis, like. All I had was the reference of opiates and how awful that shit is. Yep. Especially on the back end of it. And I didn't get any of that. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. I don't I don't have a cloud afterwards. I'm not anxious. I'm not, I'm not like what the heck? I slept great. It wasn't fake sleep. I wasn't passed out. Yep. And as I began using it, I was like, wait a minute. Again, like anything else, like let's start digging in and seeing what sort of research I can, which isn't, there isn't a whole lot of research, but really it's, the re, my research was the extent of people I started realizing were consumers, and these people were very, very, very successful people. Yep. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, yeah. this can't, you mean, I'm like, you mean to tell me this whole time all of these people, like pretty much everyone in Tim Ferriss's book, I look at and go, <laughs> I'm yes. pretty sure I have an, a good idea of exactly how these people Function. manage a lot of sort of social, social stressors. Social stressors, social anxiety, pain management, yeah. and, and that's, a, that's a big one. That's and a that's, big one, right? That's where I got for me is that – and now it's it's very strange for me because I still can't exactly articulate either the – the outline of how the skeleton of how I feel, but emotionally about it. But I, there, having been on the other end of almost death, yep. and being on this end of, this is going to sound silly, maybe, but I can't think of any other term other than spiritual enlightenment. Right, and it, it is sort of an interesting way to look at it. It's, um, you know, so where my experience is very similar. Um, I grew up. In, in an area of British Columbia where we always refer to it as BC Bud. Like marijuana, cannabis has been a part of my life, my whole life. So because of how I grew up, and I, I grew up in a conservative household, um, very anti any drug. Um, so I was actually afraid of marijuana growing up. I was like, that's what the stoners do. Fuck that guy. Look at him hotboxing out in the parking lot. Laugh at him, right? I'm total straight edge, right? I was like super jock. That's what I wanted to be. Yep. Um, same. Same, right? And so I went through my whole life 
never was a marijuana cannabis uh, consumer. And then I went through the most recent injury where I almost lost my foot. And when I when they put me on the the opioids for that, and then they put me on hydromorphone, um, yep. and I just gave me the worst stomach pains, man. Yeah, man. And I didn't I didn't see the addiction happening. Me neither. Right. And so, and what was the breaking point for me? And, and my story is very, somewhat similar in how I, I went cold turkey is I had gotten past the pain aspect of the leg. I still had an open wound, but I was past the pain aspect. And I, re, you know, I had a lot of nerve damage. So I didn't really have any sensation. And I remember I had to go out to California for a consultation. And I spent an extra day in California. Because all I wanted to do, and, th- and this is when I knew, is I wanted to sleep in knowing that I would have no phone calls, no one would know where I was in this big fancy hotel bed, and I could take uh, a hydromorphone and just lay in that weird pillow-like state. Yep. And I remember I was laying there knowing that I was invisible to the world, and I, I remember being like, what am I doing? Yeah. And I remember getting up and, and still just, you know, feeling the pain medications effects. And I remember dumping all my remaining uh, prescriptions into the toilet and flushing it. And I remember having like this real harsh awakening. And this had been like, you know, I was on pain medication uh, because of that leg off and on for a year and a half. Yeah. Um, so I had become quite used to the, 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 the high from the opioids. And so about seven months later, you know, I live in Colorado, which is a, is a blessing for this. About seven months later, I, this is the way I describe it to people. The addiction to an opioid uh, for some of us, I don't know what it's like for everybody. But for me, I can consciously sit here and know exactly what it feels like. And I can immediately go to that place in my mind. And it's not that I want to go take an opioid. It's that there's like, oh man, that was like a really good meal. Like there's this weird aftertaste mentality where you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was a, I like the way that felt, but you know, yeah. you don't want it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was like a really decadent meal that you're like, it's man, like you constantly overeat. You constantly overeat. Yeah, exactly. So, so I did my research. Like I'm such a fucking dork when it comes to this stuff. I spent about six months researching cannabis and watching all these podcasts and listening to all these experts and people that were doctors and in some regards, light years beyond my level of knowledge and success. And they were talking about the positive benefits of it. You know, Graham Hancock, who wrote The Fingerprints of the Gods and his use of cannabis and all this stuff. And so I did research and I researched different strains and did all that crazy shit. Then I went in and I bought some cannabis from one of the dispensaries here in Colorado. And I remember the first time I ever used it, I was already 40 years old. And uh, I sat down Hmm. on the couch and and I smoked too much, of course. I was using a vape pen, didn't know what I was doing. Um, And I smoked too much. But the thing that I remember is I sat down and turned on a movie on Netflix or something. And then three and a half hours later, yeah. I had this weird moment of panic because I didn't know where my phone or my computer was. And it was the first time in five years that I had lost track of either. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hold on a second. 
there's something here. And it wasn't just the high. It was the freedom of my, of my brain to lose track of this like intense need to be connected to everything and everyone in terms of like ego and insecurity. Yeah. And so now, you know, a year and a half later, it's what I find is I use way less than, than I did initially. Um, and it allows me a pain dissipates dramatically. Yep. Um, that I, uh, people may not believe this, but a strong indica strain cannabis has the exact same effect on my pain that the opioids and hydromorphone did without any of the negative. So, so let me, let me if, if I may, if I may interrupt, yeah, because please. this, this is my, if I say anything about cannabis, this is the most important thing. Yep. No, no young adolescent male or female should be consuming it. And any, and unless they have some real diagnosed condition, you know, pain. Cause here's why we, and I've had this conversation with my 10 year old son. Yep. I want my son. And if I have any children, I want more children. I, I want them to experience heartbreak. Yes. I, they need to feel what real pain and loss. I kind of want to be physically, but my yep. point is, it's that yep. it is I, and I know you're not, and I know our, our friends, we're not using it to not cope. That's the difference is that, I'm not using this to cope with my sadness. Right. I'm using it to manage the pain that I have that I'll always have. Yep. And to make myself emotionally handle it. Right. The, the, that's the difference is that I'm not doing it and going, oh, well, you know, I'm just, I don't want to think about, no, no, no. I have, it's weird, man. Like it's become part of my process. Like I yep. mentioned the shower. It's like, that's where it all starts to me. When my day is done, my work is done, everything's done. Yep. And I got all this stuff in my head that I want to organize. I carry a full size three ring notebook binder with me or like a big college ruled and a, and a multicolored pen, the four colored pen. Yeah. It doesn't leave my side after 7 PM. Right. Because it for me allows my brain to begin to categorize and organize my day. Yep. Emotionally deal with the stuff I need to emotionally deal with, like really deal with it. Not just be like, woe is me. I'm going to drink this and take this pill and totally forget about it because yep. that's the big difference. The world has lied to everyone about what marijuana is. Yes. About what cannabis is and what about THC does for you. And mm -hmm. it's not a gate. It, it is a, you're right. It's, it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway to emotional enlightenment, not to any other drug. It doesn't, it doesn't, it never it's not going to lead me to heroin. I've already no. been down that road. Right. It's not going to lead me to alcohol. It's not going to lead me it's what it's going to do is it's going to it's going to make me allow me not make me. It allows me to forget about social stigma. Yep. It allows me to forget about personal stigmas that I have about myself. Right. Or and it doesn't allow funny enough I I can't exaggerate to anyone anymore. Right. And when I'm telling the story, like my fish, my, my 22 inch fish is actually only seven inches and I'm, but I'm happy with my seven inch fish. Right. Exactly. exactly. Like I'm really fucking happy with it. Yep. And, and that's, it's man, like I, I don't even know where to begin in this context, this conversation, because again, 
I can't overstate the lack of need of a child or an adolescent or even a college student to do this. Like, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that there's any need for it. Yeah, um, I agree 100%. I like 14. And what I find is so I had a really interesting experience where I had to, in a sense, challenge myself to see whether or not I was using this as escapism, pain management, or another aspect of self. And so, you know, like a lot of people probably don't realize is I spent about four to six months of the year in the Middle East. And for obvious reasons, you don't travel to the Middle East right, with any sort sure. of drug, yeah. right? Um, uh, and so I was like, ah, I wonder if I'm going to struggle. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This is something now that I've repeated a half dozen times. Yeah. I don't have any withdrawal. Yep. Not only do I have no withdrawal, um, I don't have cravings. I don't have it. Like I don't miss it. It's not like, it's not like I can sit here all these years later and still be like, ah, yeah, pain medication. It's not like that at all. And then when you yeah, get home, like I, you're not. Well, I used to travel and like with pain meds. Like it was, it was part of my travel planning process. How do I get it there? Right. Right. It's not the case anymore. It's not the case. And that was a real big eye opener for me. Now, the, the one thing I do caution people with, and this is a real caution because it's, I didn't realize how legit it was until I experienced it. So like yourself, I'm not a big fan of adolescent use of cannabis. I'm actually more leaning towards, we know that brain development doesn't really sort of finish until your early 20s. Um, yep. Cannabis may interrupt that, right? There is, yeah, there is a sure. chance it, it could dis, disassociate you from your path a little bit. I mean, we know way too many guys that sit in their basement eating Cheetos all day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's the stigma. Cause that, yeah. that that's the stigma that's still in my head. I'm going like, yeah, this, this isn't what I've always heard my entire life. Not to say that it's not prevalent. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly it. But for me, the one thing I do caution people on is I'll also use uh, CBD oil quite a bit. And it's yeah. also quite powerful is I had a really, really aggressive volume cycle um, while I was home for about six weeks. And I got really strong again. And I was really pushing exercises. And, I, and I'll be honest, I, I felt abnormally good. And uh and then I sort of finished up my cycle of training on like a Friday. I had to catch a plane on like a Sunday and I flew to the Middle East. I kid you not, four to five days into that trip, every part of my body ached. And that's when I realized how powerful uh, both cannabis and CBD oils are for inflammation. And, and I was like, okay, I need to be a little more cautious in my training because this is actually allowing me to train through or beyond what is probably considered healthy volume parameters for me at this age. And I thought that was a little bit interesting. So it's, uh, it is a powerful, powerful anti-inflammatory for sure. Yeah. I, I, I it's interesting because You know, with, with Percocet and Vicodin and Hydromorphone and Oxymor, all those sort of things is the dose needs to continue to climb to get any value, even like pain management value out of yeah, it. Yeah, that's very true. With this, 
I that's certainly there's a there's a matter of tolerance that you get through. But I, I think that that tolerance is more associated to your anxiety drops because like anything else, it doesn't even mean being drugs. It'd be a sporting event. I have yep. never experienced this. There's a lot of anxiety associated to it. Yeah. Why are my emotions so surface level right now? Right? Yeah. Why? And that was the big surprise for me. I was like, I thought because my only reference was Percocet. Yep. Like if you, if you had given me, I mean, cause I was at the point where I was taking 40 at a time and shoving them up my, I was chewing them up to, they were a paste and I was spitting them into a large plastic syringe. Right. And then I was going rectally. That's how I was doing mine. So you that know, your stomach I, didn't get a hole in it. Right. That and my liver kind and of liver shut cut. down. Yeah. Right. So, but still in the re- reality is it still was effing me up pretty good. So, yep. um, my, but my thoughts are, is that if you gave me any, any amount of Percocet to give me the buzz or whatever it was, yep. the last thing I'm going to do is be intellectual. No, it's going to shut you off or anything. Yep. Whereas now, again, I'm not, I'm not out and about. I'm in my house after seven p.m. That there's, I have a rule. I have hard rules, and that's the thing is, I wasn't following those hard rules with any sort of opiate because I just they controlled me. Right. I let them control me. Right. Absolutely. Now, I it, it doesn't happen every night. It doesn't happen when my sons are out. It doesn't happen those sort of things because it's like you know. It's strange because I'll have a lot of thoughts as far as it's been, my business is 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 uh, positively growing yep. each day or each month or whatever you call it. And I go, for that's the thing is like I realize I got to digest a lot of my decision making. Like, okay, well, okay, tomorrow am I going to do a podcast and do a video? Do I need to go do this? And da, da, da. like I got to put out this. And at nighttime, I'd find myself in years past just like tossing and turning in bed because – I couldn't decipher up and down, left, right of like what I needed, like prioritization. Like I wasn't triaging any of my decisions. Right. And now, like I don't even, then that's also the reason why I, read, I get my notebook down because I, I, I triage my thoughts in the morning when I first thing I wake up, I'll look at it and go, huh, I cannot, that's, that's actually not even smart. That's brilliant. Like that's a, that's a right. way better idea. Like what, what our good friend, down south always says is like hey these are my ideas right you know, he writes writes them down and that's where i started going like that is why tim ferris like when he asked his new book the tribe of mentors where it's he's got like what 300 people in there and he asked them the same 10 questions it's and like right next to me on my table right now yeah it's right in front of me like 75 percent of those the smartest brightest people in the world are like yeah carry a notebook around with you so you don't yes. lose ideas and they always say so you don't lose the idea not so you don't and the reason why, in my opinion, this is totally opinionated, yep. granted, is that it is my belief that those really intelligent people have notebooks around so they don't forget because they get these great ideas when they're a little bit high. Yep. And they've got to write them down because you will forget. You will. So, and it's hard enough to remember them in a perfect state, let alone a heightened state of creativity. Yep. It's, um, <laughs> you know. It, I have a grease pen in my shower. Right. So when I have an idea in the shower, I write it on my shower wall. I tell you what, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And we talked about it briefly before the show started, but there is a a direct correlation, and you gave a a tremendous um, term for it, the the creativity that comes for the sake of running water, right? And And I've had it happen in two different areas of my life. Well, three, I would say. One – 
I mean, everyone can relate to this one is why they become so, uh, you know, emotionally available during rainy days, right? Like yes. for whatever reason, it starts raining. People want to stay inside and think about life. Um, the other one is in the shower. Everyone has incredible ideas. Ecobolic radio was created in the shower, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> nice. um, and, uh, sometimes I'll catch myself adrift once I've turned the tap on in the morning when I'm standing in front of my sink and I'll like catch myself and snap out of it and be like, man, how long have I been standing here with this water running? Yeah. And, and there's just something about it. I don't, you know, the fluidity of it, the constant, the, the connection of it to everything, you know, the fact that it is the one thing we need to survive more than any other. Um, but there is something to it. And, and I know that when we look at all these different things, people are probably shaking their head right now, wondering how these two high-level strength and conditioning meatheads are having such a, a sort of off-the-cuff conversation about cannabis use and pain management and emotional ideas and emotional availability for the sake of creativity. But it's because we spent so much of our life in that external, tangible world that this part of our life got really shut off. And, yeah. and that is a detriment to knowledge is to lose that part of your life. I, I think that th th this is a thought. I have nothing to substantiate this thought. So I don't, I don't presume to deliver it as fact, mm -hmm. but when the lifestyle that I had in the Navy and this, again, these are all my decisions. The Navy didn't make me do any of this stuff or nothing right. like it was a decisions that I subconsciously and consciously chose to create this very hard individual. Right. A survival when you mechanism. Are, right. When you are that individual, one of the first things that you lose is creativity. Right. Like true, true creativity. Like you, you, you can, you know, be thought provoking and, but to where it's, it's something because it, one of the things I've struggled with for, for a while is trying to find something physic like something that can occupy my mind and satisfy me. I'm not, this is not about cannabis. This yep. is just about like, you know, I used to always draw or I used to do this or do that. I love to, and it's it, those things as I get older tend to be fewer and far between. Right. But that's primarily also because my passion about physiology and strength conditioning has kind of taken up that, that, uh, that mantle, if you will. Yep. But I'm still trying to find things to be creative. And for me, what better way to be creative than just let, than to allow your mind to just go where it wants to go, but, well, but then record it, you know, and then record it. But you make yeah. a good point because in its truest form, creativity is also vulnerability. Yeah. And it's probably, yeah, exactly right. And it's yep. probably the most vulnerable thing that we can do as human beings is to have an internal expression become tangible and God forbid people don't like it. Yeah. Because that's, that, that's exactly what Tony Robbins has said. You know, I'm sure it's, uh, and you know what, to be honest, I probably heard it somewhere along the way and it stuck inside some part of my subconscious because that's that is something that I've always sort of 
returned back to. You know, it's like we joke about it, but it's like dance like nobody's watching, right? Because yes. that is the true sense of creativity is inhibition. And I think that when we get stuck in these constraints um, through sport, military, military and sport in your case, things become so structured and so... Uh, and they have to be, they have to be repeatable because repeatable wins championships and repeatable saves lives. Um, and what happens with that is creativity has to take a backseat for the priority. Yes. And you know, it's hard to, to unleash that, right? It's, um, you know, can you imagine, uh, imagine being in the NFL and you creatively, creatively want to play football while everybody else is playing the structured game? You would never yeah. fit in. You would you would fail yeah. dramatically. Um, but I agree a hundred percent. And it's, go ahead. To be further to be further clear, no, I do not wish that I would have started using cannabis while I was while I was in the Navy. No, I agree. Do I wish I would have started yeah. as, a, as a as a young athlete? No, I do not. Yep. It is my belief, me, that for whatever reason, people came into my life that I trusted that were consumers. My life that I created, that I allowed happen, my bad decisions and good decisions both alike, led me to the point where I, I realized I wasn't being creative. And I wasn't even using this to be creative. I didn't know. What I knew is that People I trusted were educating me on it. Right. People that I trusted had been consumers for quite a while, and I realized, like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, you mean you're not just hanging out in your mom's basement in your underwear eating Cheetos? Like, <laughs> yeah, all exactly those stigmas it. that we grew up hearing, I was like, wait, wait a minute. Yep. Like, I just, I, I remember, I literally, I think I vocalized it in the shower at one point. I was like, wait a minute. Like, this isn't. This is nothing like what I thought what I was been told my entire life that this was going to be like. Yeah, this it, is crap. <laughs> it's crap. Yeah, it it shattered my belief system because I pursued it for the sake of of dealing with chronic pain and yep. the side effect of using it <laughs> yeah, in the right. evening to sort of shut off some pain mechanisms so I could go parasympathetic so, sleep. so yeah. I could sleep, right? Like like, please, God, let me be parasympathetic for one period of my day. Because yep. even when I don't have injuries, I have a tendency to be a bit of a, a sympathetic type of guy, right? Yeah. Um, and for those that don't understand the term parasympathetic and sympathetic, it doesn't mean I give a shit about you. It means that I'm a little high strung. Um, so what I found is that was the side effect. So yeah. the, the pain killing effect of it was shocking. The side effect was my ability to actually have creative thought without as much effort. Yeah. For and if sure. you look at even the, the simplicity of the biochemistry differences. Yes. Like of stuff that without getting totally down the, the – even the, the hole that I don't totally understand is that you know one of the first things that happens – one of the first things – one of the prominent things that happens with opioid use is – you just fucking destroy your your gut biome. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's it, 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 it's 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 as bad if not worse than an antibiotic. Yes. Yes. Especially during chronic use like like Derek and I have experienced. Yep. Is, you use that every day. You, you stop going you, to the bathroom. You you don't heal. You don't heal from Ill, illness, or injury or sickness. Yep. Cuz it was I was a perpetual I was a, I was a, I was a four-stage individual and every I experienced it every 3 months. Healthy, 
relatively speaking. Yep. Then I would get a sinus infection. Then it would turn into bronchitis, then pneumonia, and then I'd get hospitalized or I'd be on a, just a crazy high dose of, of uh, Antibiotic. uh, antibiotics and the steroids of uh, like prednisone. Right, right, right. And then I'd, oh, I'd come out of it, right? And I'd be like, oh, okay, I got to get back to work and I'd deploy or do this or whatever. And then I'd be like, well, three months later, it, it would, all within that month, it'd be sinus infection, you know, bronchitis, yep. pneumonia, start hospital. And- and it, I, my body didn't have a fucking chance. You know, I was eating nope. 4,000 calories a day. Yep. Couldn't sleep because obvious reasons. I, you can't sleep when you're – I couldn't sleep on opiates. Nope, neither could stress, I. Stress, all those sort of things. Yep. And then now I just – it's strange because I look at the contrast of my life and go, whoa. But I, but I really do believe that I needed to experience that, the opiate side, to generally authentically – analyze what I'm experiencing with cannabis. I, I would think so. And, and I know for myself, it was at least now, you know, with the theme of what we're talking about today is it took me from the information to the knowledge stage. And yes, yes. For yeah, me yeah. now, I can sit down and be like, why don't I like opioids or variations of it for pain management? This is why. And I know that some people have a gene where they'll never really experience the addiction to an opioid. And that's cool. But it doesn't change the fact that they don't heal anything. Yes. And I'm not saying that cannabis heals anything. I'm, I'm not even saying that. I know it, we have some CBDs will affect inflammation. That seems to be positive. But what I'm saying is if all you're looking for is pain management, then why not use something that doesn't have all the side effects? Yeah. You know, catastrophic, like catastrophic side effects. And you know, if you, ha- if you have a, if you have a, an injury that has some need for, re- for, for extended rehabilitation, mm-hmm. like your foot, for example, or just chronic back pain or, right. you know, I'm not saying, Hey, I've twisted my ankle. Nothing's broken. I'm in an air cast. Oh, I better get some Percocet. No, right. exactly. When you have extended medical care that needs to happen to get you quote unquote back on your feet. Yeah, like that. The likelihood of an addiction is weeks. much is very high. Absolutely, because when you're really, really fucked up. I mean, when you're sore and hurt, and and every time you move, it's nauseating, or you're bedridden and you can't move. Yeah, you start. You know, you start looking for a little bit of an escape from the day. And, you, you know, and to the, the point of like again, my, I've been down hard now for almost two weeks because I did. I've, I hurt my back for the first time and five and a half years to the point where I was damn near bedridden Yep. Uh, once or one or two days in the last two weeks or so. And before I would have gone, yeah, well, it's Percocet time so I can be mobile. I can be ambulatory. Yep. Right. But I still wasn't eating. I still wasn't sleeping. I still wasn't healing, being productive. Nope. In any way. Now it's like, again, I, I as soon as I get off with you, man, I'm going to eat some food. I'm going straight to the pool. Again, it's all pain management. I'm going to get in the yep. pool some for an hour, come back, be productive all day, yep. right? If the, if the pain persists when it's time for me to get away from the phone and computer and work and just chill, yep. and my son's not around and people aren't around, yeah, it's it's time to heal. <laughs> yeah. 100%. That's my focus is. My focus is healing. Yep. And it's it's not only healing the body, it's healing the mind and healing you know the experiences of your life. It's... Uh, yeah, it's pretty insightful. And I don't know what people will take away from this conversation. Um, if they were like me five years ago, they'll write yeah. it off completely. 
They'll be like, yep. nah, not for me. And, yep. and, and that's I, okay. And I'm totally yep. okay with that. If, if there are people that have been struggling with some pain management, sleep issues with some other issues, and they, and they live somewhere where they can get it medically or, or recreationally, give it a shot. If it doesn't work for you, don't worry. The shit isn't addictive, right? Yeah, it's not a carcinogen. It's not a carcinogen. So that's the other thing. It's like it's not. And and that's the thing is we are pumping ourselves full of cigarettes that really give zero value other than an appetite suppressant. Yep. If you want to even consider that a value. A value. And and if someone really wants to stay away from the psychoactives – Start with some CBD oil. CBD oil, yeah. And, and, and people have to understand, their good CBD oil is not psychoactive. You won't get yep. high. You yep. will be cautious because it may make you a little sleepy. So if, you, uh, if you're supposed to have an active field night, it may want, make you want to sit on the couch a bit. But that's yeah. it. Um, yeah, side effect. You're going to sleep better than you slept in years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, spoiler alert. Spoiler yeah. alert, yeah. <laughs> so, Jeff, as we close up today – What's the easiest way that people can reach out to you? Um, and I, I know I'll get your, your notes to put into the show notes at the end. But sort of just in a summary, what are you doing right now? What are you providing to people? And what can they do to sort of reach out to you if they need your assistance as a coach? Yeah, I, uh, my website is finally up after a bit of decision-making whether I wanted to really make this a full-blown sort of endeavor. Um, yep. My website really is targeting active duty, military, firefighter, police, or people preparing for military service or, or law enforcement service or fire service. Yep. But that's that's kind of the best way to check me down. It's My website is www.performancefirstus.com. Yep. You can find me on Instagram just by name. And then basically my YouTube page is really a – I consider my YouTube page my best source of information that I've – shared with and I have people you know other people on there with me that I've interviewed and talked to a guy named Stu Smith's always on there with me doing a podcast yep but again I again it's my idea came when I was mowing I'm like god I got all these questions how do I answer them I want to be thorough I don't want to have a cookie cutter sort of statements so basically as people ask me questions that are thought-provoking or valuable for the masses yes I do a video on it you know a 7 to 20 30 40 minute video sometimes of just answering questions on my YouTube channel. Oh, that's so that's fantastic. probably a great a great place to find a lot of the information that I uh, I share. And do they just uh, do they just YouTube your name or do you have a Yeah, just yeah, if you just look up Jeff Nichols, yep. you you'll find me. I I just hit the 10,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Perfect. So it's kind of uh, I think for that reason too, it's easy to whatever find. Google does. Yeah. Whatever yep. Google does, they kind of put you out there. Absolutely. That's uh that's a lot of people that are getting some good information. And in terms of any travel or upcoming seminars, do you have anything planned that people might be able to catch you at or is it still a long ways off? Yeah. Um, I know Matt Vincent and I are going to do a free seminar in awesome. like Vermont or something here in a couple months. Okay. But the, 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 the national or the annual, tactical strength and conditioning uh symposium if you will is happening actually in norfolk this year i mean you should if you're in if you're in the u.s man you should come when is that it is april okay april 2nd through the 5th got it second through the 5th yeah so i mean you, again it's uh, i'm sure cal will be out here i know bird will be here but we're, but my point is is like i'm not a big conference person Yep, but sometimes you catch those really good ones like Summer Strong or the athlete, the the athlete, uh, the uh, Jesus Power Athlete Power yeah. Athlete Symposium. It's it, when you catch the right one, you catch the right one. 
Yep. And 100% agree. The one is in, it just so happens to be in my backyard this year, which is great. And I'll be there for that. And, but again, I'm, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I, I got some, just like we were talking about with Judd did with, with, yep. pa- with Poliquin is I'm picking at least one place each month that I'm going just to go. Just to get that experience and yeah. knowledge from people. Yeah. Yep. So like I said, I'm going to meet, meet up with Dana Santis and Donovan Santis for spring training. Um, and then like the next month I'm going to go see, uh, Joe Connolly at Arizona state and yep. I'm going to go, you know, hockey season is going to be coming to an end here shortly. That's when Cal will free up a little bit more probably. Right. For visit sure. him. And that's always a, a brilliant time. Cal's yeah. One just, of the top I'm going to come out and see met. you again before, before you come, either before you go back overseas yep. or right before you come back, I'm going to come out to Denver again, at least, for I'm, sure. you know, just cause I know you're out there and Jen's out there and. It's just it's, a, it's easy, right? And it's just a it's a good problem. recharge, right? It's yep. uh, get around like minded people. You end up doing very like minded things. So if they're successful, motivated people, it, it does brush off on you a little bit. And yep. it's uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that as well. Well, I would just like to say thank you very much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I know that you're very busy. Um, I look forward to catching up to you in person for sure. And I'll get all this information out and hopefully we'll be able to do this again next couple months. Awesome, man. We'll we'll catch up again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Woodsky on his Instagram or at DerekWoodsky.com. 